0: here wherever you are listening to this, whether it's on Patreon, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere you get your finer podcasts. And uh, I appreciate you folks for checking this out and subscribing, whether it's free or you're behind the paywall on patreon.com slash Tony Maser, Just five bucks a month if you are interested in what I have going for you in my earlier access to guests, including today's guests. So we wrap up 2021. <clears throat> Last year was the very odd year, and it was hard to really wrap up a year that was kind of under this dark cloud. And, I mean, in 2021, it wasn't too good either, especially how it's ending right now uh, with a lot more cases that are popping up. But there, it's a little bit more normal right now than it was, say, a year ago. And you know, when we would talk about celebrity deaths, that there wasn't a ton of them because people kind of isolated themselves during the pandemic of uh, 2020. And by 2021, it seemed like people were back to just dying of regular things. It wasn't COVID anymore. It's like, COVID? No, it's uh, cancer. Oh, okay. I see how that goes. So, uh, but one thing we do here on, uh, well, I've done when I've been on the radio and here on this podcast, you kind of wrap up the year that was with popular culture. And that also talks about celebrity deaths uh, because of the impact a lot of these figures had on the culture. And with me is the pop culture expert here in my area where I'm broadcasting from. And that's Bob Ethington, who recently retired not too long ago from the Akron uh, Summit County Public Library and uh, traveling the country, enjoying himself, him and his wife. Just uh, uh, just getting out of Dodge and getting out of this cold weather for a little bit, although I think you ran into some cold weather as well in some parts. But, Bob, good to have you on.
1: It's great to be here, Tony. Thanks. Um, yeah, you're talking about that trip Um I just, I have to mention it was an interesting phenomenon. My wife and I, it was uh, our 40th wedding anniversary and um, we're both retired. And so we decided with this sort of gap, as you mentioned in the uh, COVID wars, that it would be a chance for us to maybe head out West, something we'd wanted to do, do a big road trip out West, which we did. We kind of went all the way through via Chicago, through South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, and the reason I bring this up is because what I found was the further west you went, the less COVID seemed to exist. <laughs> it was, I I mean, mean, un- well, until California, but it, where not, it ramps back well, up. It, it's kind of like when you're
0: going over the mountains, and you're yeah. like, "Oh, well, no, we're back here." But for right. the most part, really, yeah, it really, seemed like as soon as you got out of Ohio, that uh, mm-hmm. or even not even out of Ohio, out of our area in Akron, as soon as you mm-hmm. go over into Medina County, it seemed like COVID was over.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, Chicago was extremely strict. I mean, everywhere, yet inside, you had to wear a mask or whatever. And then it was just, you know, we'd get into South Dakota and stop at a gas station and someone working there might have a mask on, particularly if they were cooking or, you know, whatever. But eventually, yeah, it was like no mask, no, no decals on the floors or anything. They just have a different mentality about it. Partially, I understand it because there's so few people out there. (laughs) You know, they're not on top of each other like we tend to be over here. But the one exception was New Mexico. And as I was heading towards New Mexico, and I'd set would tell people that they I they'd always say the same thing. Oh, New Mexico, the liberal state. But apparently, <laughs> apparently the governor there's a Democrat, and so they do have more strict COVID rules. Whatever, I don't know. It was just it was just sort of a fascinating phenomenon to notice.
0: <laughs> and When you talk about pop culture in the COVID era, I think things that were going on uh, that kind of came out of last year because we we see you know there was tiger king there was uh, some of the streaming shows that popped up but a lot of those were filmed before things shut down and the guidelines and now when you're seeing kind of the the response right now when it comes to the fact that everyone was home last year and they watched everything imaginable it's like i, I don't really want to watch this but i'm going to watch it anyways i got nothing else to do and so everybody just kind of consumed as much as they could well now you're looking at whether it's books whether it's um television shows and movies, especially movies, they've been really affected now. And not just for protocols, it's just <clears throat> our habits really have changed to the point where, you know, did people really how many people, unless you're a true movie buff, missed going to the movie theater? And yeah. now that the movie theaters are reopened now, still people are like, Yeah, there's nothing really I want to go see anyway. So I'm just gonna watch it at home.
1: And, well I think yeah you're absolutely right. I mean I think that there's different layers of this, Tony, for instance I think that people who really love music really miss going to live music shows, like watching a music on TV at home is never going to be the same as experiencing a band or a singer in a live in the venue movies. On the other hand, I think are in big trouble. Now, of course, movies have been in big trouble several times <laughs> over this last century. You know, TV was going to kill radio was going to kill him. TV was going to kill him. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, repeatedly they've they've come up with these big challenges. But I mean, I just heard the other day that like the stock prices on several of the main movie chains, uh, you know, I think AMC was one, but um, you know, are really dropping because I mean, there's, I mean, the investors just aren't seeing a future for them, and it's because of exactly what you said, and and in a way, it's kind of like the music industry. The music industry, you know, killed itself by allowing streaming, right? Which meant that ultimately, why will anybody ever pay money? Why was it somebody, unless you're a total music geek and you want to get in on vinyl or whatever, why is somebody going to buy an album for $15 when they can listen to it for free, right? I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And so, of course, that's made it that basically you can't make money as a musician anymore unless you're one of these top tier, you know, people who've been around forever. And similarly, I mean, there's like this Nightmare Alley movies coming out. Well, it's going to be on HBO Max the day it plays at a theater. Now, how many people are really going to want to go to see that movie at the movie theater as opposed to watching it at home? Unless you're a true
0: film buff and you like going to because even before. So two years ago, I think two years ago today is when I watched The Irishman. And a movie that I did not think was all that good, uh, yeah. and it's not just because uh, I'm not comparing Scorsese's current work to Casino and to Goodfellas. I just I thought it was too long, drawn-out, boring. I had two pee breaks. I did, I did go to the bathroom twice, uh, yeah. but I didn't stop it. I watched it all the way through. But there was that option where you can go to the movie theater in 2019 right. to go see it, or you can watch it from home. And I'm like— I don't want to sit through a three and a half hour movie at the theater when I could just stay at home, make my own food uh, or order food from elsewhere and I can get a chance to watch it. And I just and the pandemic, I think, helped propel some of those habits that were already the seeds were already planted there and it just furthered them into this, quote unquote, new normal. And then this is just what it is. I think they're like you said, there are certain things people miss. And I remember I've gone to several concerts. I've gone to the Kent Stage here locally and a couple other places and that first concert that I saw at the Odeon in downtown Cleveland, <clears throat> I had the greatest time in the world because I'm like, thank God, after 15 plus months, I'm seeing live music again. But right. same can't be said for other forms of entertainment.
1: Right. Well, I, <laughs> I'll have I, the, your, your take on the Irishman, I have to uh, uh, counter a little bit. But the funny thing is, I had the exact same experience as you. You'll remember, of course, that Scorsese. Made that deal. It was sort of a deal with the devil, right? That he made it with Netflix, I believe, and it was like they were going to give him all this money. He couldn't get any major studio to give him the money because he wanted to do that de aging technique, yeah. you know, that made the Nero et cetera all look younger, um, to a uh, various degrees of success. <laughs> I, I might add, but um, but yeah, he insisted that the movie be shown in theaters, like that was part of the contract, because he's a true cinema artist and to him a movie needs to be seen in a theater and i get that i would prefer to see a movie in a theater as well i had exact same experience as you though i thought to myself okay it's playing at this really cool theater here in akron i love that place do i really want to sit there for almost four hours and i am i am a I'm a pierced in the sense that I can't stand. I'm one of those people who like, I can't stand if I miss the, like the credit, you know, the beginning of a movie. I mean, I have to see the whole thing beginning to end. And so it's like, yeah, I was like, uh, I think I'm just going to watch this at home. You know, I I can pause it if I need to, I can, you know, and like you say, you know, make your own food or whatever. I just think that the whole world, it, it, it just, it, it, it it's just, it's, it's basically it. COVID has met technology to move us to this place. Technology now exists. That you can do virtually anything experience anything on your phone anywhere you are and now you're we've been we had this whole period where basically you were forced to be at your house or you know shut off from other people or whatever but that was the outlet that was the outlet and coming out of this now i think people are going to be they were moving in that direction anyway and i think that this is sort of fast-forwarded that, you know what I mean? There
0: there was that time, and obviously you remember the days of MTV at the beginning, and, you know, video killed the radio stars, it's going to kill radio, and ultimately it didn't. Radio survived. Radio's problem is it did not adapt over time by the millennium, and they weren't able to get streaming on their website, and they they, they just didn't really have the foresight, and uh, you know, MTV kind of helped push that at the beginning, but there still was a little bit of that time where you're like, "No, no, no, I still like getting an album, getting a cassette tape i'm getting a cd player uh and i want to want to get a chance to listen to this from home and then you know i get to the full album nowadays mm. full albums are just not much of a thing you just see you know people putting out uh, singles so sure. it's not even just music it's it's also or i mean movies it's music too where it's the streaming the streaming services they're making like nothing so they're based, no. and because when you talk about is music suffering is music worse today than it was at one time and the truth is it is but it's not not just because of one of those okay boomer things things were better in my day it was because right. they're making no money from it now so why should they put the effort now conventional wisdom is you should put the effort in anyways even if you're not getting paid for it for art for art's sake however right. if you're a, an established artist why are you going to put out great music like the foo fighters for example arguably mm-hmm. the biggest rock band in the country right now uh, and of the last probably decade and a half but their new music you know who's really clamoring for new Foo Fighters? You want to hear stuff from '95, '97, '99, 2002. Right. You don't really want to hear new, but they have to put something out there because it's a marketing tool. And it almost seems like some of these television shows are are doing the same thing, where they're not gonna, you're not gonna make a ton of money sending it to Netflix or to Hulu, but right. it's a, it's just another vehicle of getting your stuff out there.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the album is sort of an archaic idea now but it but artists still stick to it because they're just used to it they're used to that and and the album is it, it's kind of like the novel to me i mean it is it you know a well put together album of great songs you know from the first you know the first one through the last one it can be a real aesthetic experience on its own but you're i mean you know people forget that the album as we know it really didn't even really exist until the late 50s really into the 60s is when that really became what we think of as you know albums and so you're talking 60s 70s 80s 90s it's like a 40 year thing but you know it's already i mean it's already dissipating and really like i mentioned earlier i mean i heard an interview with little steven from from springsteen's east street band and and he was talking about how yeah you know he they're like he's lucky he's like part with springsteen he's one of the last of the dinosaurs because these are those are the only bands that can make like a like a good like really great living by going on tour because people would still go out to see you two and bruce springsteen um foo fighters as you mentioned you know there's a few other bands that fit that criteria but exactly like you say tony when you go if somebody goes to see bruce springsteen Yeah, he's going to have some new album. You're really hoping he plays like one or two songs off it. (laughs) Because what people are going to hear is Born to Run, you know, in the river and songs like that. I mean, his that coach's career, his legend is based on, you know, his first five or six albums. Speaking of Springsteen and speaking of the music business, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that happened over this last year is um, these major artists selling their catalogs. And people are like, you know, I know people who are like, man how can bob dylan sell the rights to his music you know you know how can he do that it's like because he knows that this is the last chance he's gonna have to really make a major payday on on his work because it's you know he can put an album out and it can win a grammy and you know and people can r- get the rave reviews about it. his last album rough and ready ways it's a great record but how much? I can't, how many people really sold? It? You know, it it comes in. It's like number one. A number one album now is something that sells like twenty thousand copies. Yeah. you know, it used to be a million copies, or two million, three million, five million. So it's, you know, it's just a different time. And I just, and I saw to bring this all full circle. I just saw last night that there, Springsteen. I think Dylan sold his a hundred million dollars a little or a little over that and people are like wow that's crazy apparently springsteen is getting over 500 million dollars for his catalog
0: of songs it's unbelievable yeah but, but while crazy. the getting's good dollars <laughs> well because c- i saw criticism people were saying like oh why would he do that i thought you know isn't this an art form and it's just like i mean the guy's 72 years old right and right he and here's the other big thing that when you think about musicians, and I, you know, I know you know this too, it, for being a fellow musician yourself, your yeah. best work as a musician comes probably in your early 20s. And yeah. the reason that happens, like late teens, early, maybe throughout your 20s, I'd say probably no more than 30. And the only reason is you don't have much to lose there. You are maybe a college dropout. Maybe your parents kicked you out. And there's, it's like, look, I got to go for it right now. Right. So you're going to write the you're going to write the best work possible. You're going to go out on the road. You're not going to make any money from these gigs, and the only money you're making is to gas up the truck and take mm-hmm. it to the next venue. So you go to the next city, right. and you just keep doing that, and you grind it out. And that's a young man's game. That's not a 45 right. year old person. That's not a 70 yeah. year old person's doing that. That right. is it. That is a young man's game, and you got to do it when you can. That's right. why some of these artists like Springsteen are not going to come out with Darkness on the Edge of Town and Uh, Born to Run and some of these other uh, great uh, songs that he was having with the E Street Band in the early to mid 70s that by the 90s, by the 2000s, he wasn't going to have that because your perspective changes and your perspective definitely changes when you can sell your catalog for half a billion dollars.
1: Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be hard for for Springsteen. sing those working man in the car wash songs (laughs) but he's but he's now clearly a billionaire oh yeah that's his problem i guess um i will say as is in many ways bob dylan is the exception he's 80 years old and he's still constantly on the road um you know, I read. I read somebody who once said, "You know, it seems like Bob just doesn't ever want to go home." <laughs> he, <laughs> he is the exception, but no, you're right. You're you're totally right. Of course, you know, with classical music and jazz, it's different, but definitely with pop popular music, the you know most artists do their best work by before they're thirty, for sure. And it is exactly for the reasons you said: being hungry
0: and being able to take those chances. Well, let's as well as you know living in your car. (laughs) So, so let's segue that into some of the musicians that we've lost in 2021, because their names and and you were on our radio show this week, uh, talking about this and their names, just like, you know, there, there are certain artists that end up passing away that are too soon that we've heard over time. But a lot of these, it's getting to the point where if you're a baby boomer, the people that you grew up with and you admired are, are, are leaving now. Yep. And it's, it's kind of a reflection on your own mortality. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be too, oh, no, morbid. I, know,
1: I know what you're talking about,
0: <laughs> but it's just like, when you hear that, it's like, Oh man, that was my childhood. And now mm-hmm. that's gone. Because And it's not like they died suddenly or, or it was just, you know, whatever the case was, this is somebody who lived a full life and they're passing and you go, wow, that was my childhood hero. That was, yeah. Oh, I looked up to him or her or whatever the case is. And, we had a number of those pop up so i'll run through some of these names and we can kind of break them down um but uh, just last week we lost michael nesmith from the uh the monkeys a band yeah. that not you know, they there were a parody band in a way There there were actors who essentially learned how to play instruments over time that they learned how to sing and they learned how to do things but it was kind of like one of those rock star supernova reality shows that they just made into a TV show. And after the TV show, it's like, well, I mean, we're still in demand, you know, we're still kind of like the trying to be the, the Beatles of America. So let's, uh, let's keep this going. And, uh, and granted, they had a lot of their songs written for them by like Neil Diamond and others, but there were good songs that you could still listen to today.
1: Sure. Well, I'm old enough to remember when the monkeys actually first came out and I mean I- young but I remember it and I and the thing was was that um the monkeys were largely derided by people who were into music because you know you write like as you say they uh, with the exception of Michael Nesmith who was an actual musician the rest of them were not and um they you know yeah they were a fake band they were some you know supposed to be like the pretend Beatles whatever they had these hit songs that irritated people that were really into music you know seriously into music what's funny is as the years have passed, the people that I know who are the real music hipsters and, you know, and deep dive lovers of, of the, the rock music era um, love the monkeys now. And all of a sudden, you know, the realization that so many other bands, like, I mean, you know, the beach boys, I mean, the Be- the the beach boys, pet sounds album that, you know, who actually played most of the music on that was the wrecking crew, this yes. rhythm section, you know? And so, Glen you candle. know, right. Exactly. So it's like, I think that now that idea that, oh, gee, they didn't really play their instruments at first and they didn't really write most of their songs ever <laughs> um, doesn't really bother anybody as much. And Nesbeth did write a lot of, 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 their good songs. And the funny thing is it, it it's funny because when you think of the monkeys, you think of like a band that like had all these like, you know, top 10 hits that we all know last train to Clarksville and daydream believer, all those songs, people now that are like sort of like music hipsters, they like don't totally are into tracks on monkeys albums, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, and a lot of those were written by Michael Nesmith. And then when he left the, when he left the monkeys when the monkeys broke up, whatever um, he, um, he was kind of an early progenitor of what would turn into country rock music because he had a real interest in that. And so he made, he had this band called the first national band and their records, which came out like really early 70s, were really like right at the vanguard of bands that later would be, you know, like Graham Parsons and uh, and The Eagles, you know, but, you know, huge bands like that that would take off from from what the, the kind of stuff he was doing. So he he was kind of ahead of his time in that way. Um, he, you know, I, it's personal aside here. He was scheduled, I guess this would be 2019. It was definitely before the plague came. Um, so early 2019, maybe 2018, he was scheduled to play at the Kent stage. Yes. And I was, really, and I was looking forward to going to see him, but then he had to cancel due to health issues. And yeah, that, that will, will, will never happen now, obviously. Um, I want to just go back in time a little bit. You're mentioning about boomer era music figures, uh, passing away. Um, you're really, you're exactly right because you know there's always been the history of people that die from drug overdoses. Then you got like someone like a John Lennon who's assassinated, but basically they are not dying of natural causes at a you know old age. For I, th- when David Bowie died um, at the age of 70, I remember talking to several of my friends who are music critics and stuff, uh, and it was like this is going to open the floodgates, you know? I mean, it was like, that was almost like the marker. Like, wow, David Bowie, who saw that coming? And then Glenn Fry
0: like the next week.
1: Yeah, 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 right, exactly. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. When you look at some of these, the people who have passed away in this last year, I mean, there are the, sadly, the, you know, occasional, drug uh OD or whatever but yeah a lot of them it's just well I mean a perfect example is Charlie Watts right
0: <laughs> yes that's what I was going to get to next
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um one of the great rock drummers and you know he lived to be 80 years old not bad being in a living in the the world that the rolling stones lived in to make it to 80 is pretty good and um still playing you know up until close to the very end um and uh yeah but it, it still kind of takes it takes you by surprise you know and it's like that's the case with nesmith i've been surprised by how many people are like oh this is such sad tragic news it's so terrible well it, i mean any death is nesmith was 78 you know he had a, that's a decent run and uh i just think it's because these people are part of our lives you know they're mm-hmm. such a part of our 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 youth maybe and then you know just you know it's just it's they are leaving us like that it's uh yeah. It, well, I guess it, <laughs> it kind of reminds you of your own mortality, as you were hinting earlier. You,
0: you were mentioning uh, on the radio with us earlier this week about Charlie Watts, because you you lean towards, and I think true, um, I, I guess, passionate drummers look to the jazz drummers. So you look to the Gene Krupa's, so you look to the... Uh, you know, the Buddy Riches and uh, even to yeah. this day, I mean, some of the best jazz dr- drummers are, are jazz drummers originally, like Danny Carey from the band Tool, uh, uh-huh. who I, I love. And he's one of the great drummers of all time. And Charlie yeah. Watts was of that school where he would keep time and hold the drumstick in, you know, because everybody thinks you're just banging away. And it's it, it's a true art form. And that's what Charlie uh-huh. Watts was doing.
1: He he played with the jazz grip. Yes. Unlike most rock yes he did right and his his first love was jazz he he actually had in those occasional interim periods where the stones weren't getting along or there were gaps that for whatever reason and they're putting out albums he had a jazz band of his own actually made of two or three records I think
0: and then a couple of uh I, I got a bunch of these and you know I can go through them a little quicker um but we, we could spend some time on them uh one of them is a local guy that we've We've known in this area for a long time. And that was Michael Stanley who passed away yeah. uh, back in March. And I actually worked with Michael Stanley at WNCX many years ago, and I got to know him a little bit. He was uh, – what it would always be funny because I was in one studio. I was in the sister station, and he was next door, and he, w- he would work afternoon drive, and – Michael Stanley had a pretty nice living at that point because at this, at this time in radio, you don't really need to do too much if you're a DJ. So he would do a lot of sales appearances and he would do a lot of promotional things and do live reads. But he'd be bored a lot in the studio. He'd play he'd play card games on the, on the computer and different things. So he would pop into our studio and we'd always joke he was like Benson from uh, Soap. where He would pop into the studio and tell like a really dirty joke. And then by the time we're we're all starting to laugh because of the absurdity of not only the joke, but Michael Stanley telling such an absurd joke that by the time we're done laughing, he's already in his studio and the door closed. So it was just he'd pop in, dirty joke, we're laughing, and it's like he's back on the air uh, introducing a Van Halen record. It was hilarious.
1: (laughs) I have a funny story. I mean, it'll involve me dropping a name of a friend of mine, but I have a funny, whenever I think of Michael Stanley, I always think of this, um, you know, famously Michael Stanley sold out. He has the record for like selling out blossom shows. Uh, I don't know if you know that. Yeah, it was like four them. in
0: a row back in the uh, 1982.
1: Right. 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 Well, so, um, uh, one of my uh, really good friends is Chuck Klosterman and who's of course a a, a writer critic. He's become nationally known Mm -hmm. now. And, um, but he came through Akron. You may remember he worked for the Akron Beacon Journal for about four or five years. That's where I got to where, that's how I met him. And um, anyway, he always had this story that always amused me that he's, he moved here from, from uh, North Dakota. And he was here for like, you know, he, he, it was like his first week here in Akron. And, um, some of the guys from the newspaper, uh, I believe David Giffles was one of them, uh, and he was, he was at the Beacon at the time. They went to uh, went to a bar, you know, to you know have drinks and kind of get acquainted or whatever. And uh, Chuck said, you know, well, you know, I'm going to go. I'll go to the jukebox, and uh, uh, you know, I'm going to play some music. And he goes to the jukebox, and he's like, there's like four Michael Stanley albums, on, <laughs> Michael Stanley band albums on in this jukebox, and he's like who is this band? You know, his job is to write about rock music and pop, you know, pop music. And he's like, I've never heard of this band. And there's like, there's, you know, 20 possibilities of albums to play on this jukebox. And like four of them are this MSB. (laughs) And I just thought that was funny because it was the weirdest thing about Michael Stanley. We mentioned Springsteen earlier, Michael Stanley at his height kind of had sort of a Springsteen quality right i mean his songs were about working people cleveland you know or or that that kind of zeitgeist if you will and he was um and he was so huge locally and yet he never could really quite broke out nationally and in a way that i'm sure that had to drive him nuts because the label supported him pretty much they put out that double album stage pass that's what all they that's what they used to do back in the day to break bands Frampton comes alive you know cheap trick live in Budokan they would put out like a live album to break these bands that it had made several records that hadn't really taken off and
0: and and had a lot of guest musicians like Joe Walsh that was on there and uh, Joe Vitale and everybody
1: yeah 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 he had connections so um but, yeah, everything I've always heard about him was that he was an interesting guy and a pretty and a really nice guy, too. So I know a lot of people were very that, – that was kind of the local northeast Ohio version of Bowie dying. I mean, I think that was – he was a huge part of a lot of – a whole generation's uh, youth.
0: Yeah, for a lot of people who don't know Michael Stanley and might be listening to this outside of Cleveland – uh, pick your, you know, whether you're in Pittsburgh and you have Donnie Iris or if you're living in L.A. and there's a, an artist that you thought that this local guy that was going to make it big and did some touring. I mean, there's Michael Stanley. There's video of him and his band on uh, Bandstand with Dick Clark. Um, but there's but he was just one of those guys that management just did not help him out and that did not break him into some of the big markets that he should have been. And uh, I mean, that stuff kind of happens with a lot of these artists that are locally uh, and don't have the backing of a national group. But I did hear a story. I don't know if it's true that it was maybe 1979, could be about 1980, that a label had two choices of bands that they wanted to sign. Like, I, I, I don't know the goings on when it comes to that, but it's the story that I heard was that there were two bands that were on the bill for the possibility of being signed. And one of them was the Michael Stanley band and another, and I'm not sure whatever happened to this band, but they were called Huey Lewis and the news. <laughs> <laughs> Take a guess which one got picked.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. So the funny thing though, is, is that I could see, I could have seen that going either way. I mean, those bands had similarities. Oh, you know? yeah.
0: As much as a lot of the horn section was going on in Huey Lewis, especially what they became. Mm -hmm. yeah there were similarities in that heartland rock that was popular like john cafferty and the beaver brown band and go through that um uh, a couple more we'll go through let's see we lost uh dmx uh, at an early age had drug problems and uh financial problems and uh as well mary wilson uh we lost dusty hill from zz top did you ever get to see zz top live
1: Unfortunately, no. Um, and I wish I really wished I had, because I bet that they were great um,
0: live. It was fun. I saw them in 2007, and as as fun as it was, I was told that there might have been a possibility that it was a pre-recorded concert. Oh, really? That, fr- that Frank Beard, the only one who doesn't have a beard, is the joke we've heard for 40 plus years. But right, uh, Frank Beard was the one playing the drums, but uh, but B- Reverend Willie G and Dusty Hill were not actually playing. So you know, that's a rumor. I, I know they got popped with it before, but now that I think back to that concert, which is about 15 or so years ago, I'm like, yeah, that possibility could have been taped. So hmm. um, and then the, and the last one I have here for um, the music category before we move on to another category is uh, Phil Spector. Yeah, good. I'm glad. I, I wanted to talk about him. <laughs> so so talk a little bit about the impact Phil Spector had on the industry, both obviously in the positive section that kind of gets overlooked with the wall of sound and right. then the negative, which was is his, obviously his, the way he was had a little issue with the well basically every single person that worked with him including his wife Ronnie.
1: Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean I we've I've talked about this before. I mean, Phil Spector, the, his legacy has got to be one of the most complex and twisted ones possible in popular culture. Because the guy was undoubtedly a genius in terms of producing pop sound songs. I mean, uh, you, you talk to like Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys who I consider a genius. He always says that the single greatest record he's ever heard was Be My Baby. Um, And, you know, and he says to him, that's the perfect record, the perfect song, the perfect sound. And the cat's the key is the sound, how Phil Spector produced that sound. Um, He would, you know, his methods were very unorthodox. He would bring in, you know, he'd have three drummers and, you know, four bass players. And, you know, I mean, he just would stack up this sound, but he managed to make it clear and powerful all at the same time. And his production credits over the years i mean he's you know he's thought often you know a lot of people would consider myself included think of his you know greatest work being with sort of like a lot of the girl groups and stuff that he worked with early on and the righteous brothers like you you've lost that love and feeling that's like a classic phil Spector production um but of course he went on you know he produced john lennon he produced the beatles uh to you know controversially the let it be album there's been that Get Back documentary that everyone has been talking about that came out uh, this last month, uh, which is about the making of Let It Be. Well, you know, people forget that when they were done with that album, they basically thought, like, boy, this is just a mess. And they handed it over to Phil Spector. So he's the one who overdubbed a lot of all those strings and things on songs like let it be and the long and winding road which the beatles themselves hated (laughs) mccartney in particular Mm -hmm. really hated long what he did to long and winding road and it's i don't blame him but um but you know he kind of but then on the other hand he produces john lennon's first solo album the plastic ono band album which is a classic in which could not be anything further from strings and choruses and all that it's very dry very simple so he knew what he was doing he would go on to produce people like leonard cohen and the ramones i mean a wide range a swath of music but as those years went on it, like into the 70s and then in lo- like early 80s he kind of became impossible to work with because he was such a maniac i mean he had all these problems huge i mean this is all well documented it's not rumor i mean i oh, yeah. was you know doing cocaine like a maniac and he would have guns and you know there's a famous story with leonard cohen with where um he it was an album called death of a ladies man and uh cohen you know had always his stuff had always been pretty sparse and so this was kind of this grand experiment for him to work with phil Spector and have this huge production and so he goes in and records all the songs and what he thinks, Leonard Cohen was never the greatest singer anyway, but he thought that these were just sort of scratch tracks. He's basically just kind of almost reading the lyrics. So then he comes out of he, he, uh, the studio and he's in the booth with Spectre. And then he comes back and he's like, okay, well I'm ready to start recording the actual vocals. And Spectre's like, no, you're done. And he's like, well, wait a <laughs> minute. I never even really, I was just reading. I, I didn't even sing it. And Spectre pulls a gun on him like, oh, <laughs> and says, no, you're done and lecon like okay and that's how that album came out that's <laughs> was amazing he found it, it, and him basically reading the lyrics and he hates he hated that album to the end of his life uh whether cohen did although it has of course like everything does its own sub uh, section of people that think it's great
0: yeah, isn't there <laughs> stories about how ronnie had an affair with john lennon and that he refused to send the ronettes on tour with the beatles or something and that yeah. he would, and then she had a book that came out maybe in the eighties about uh, he would lock her in the basement, and it was just it was really creepy when I was reading about some of the stuff years ago.
1: Yeah, and then you know, and so then you know he goes through fifteen years or whatever of, or, or maybe even twenty, of real very little activity at all of, of anything until he ends up, you know, being tried for murder and found guilty, and of course there's that his whole crazy. Anyone that remembers that trial at all remembers his interesting choice of toupee. Mm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The huge mammoth sort of fro thing that he had. I mean, he couldn't look more absurd. So who knows what was going on in that guy's mind? He clearly was a genius, but also like a maniac. And it's... I don't know. To me, it's just really interesting because... Um, like I say, his legacy is going to be the epitome of a complex one. It's gonna be, you know, uh it's impossible. I mean, I remember when the head when he died, it was like some of the headlines were like Phil Spector, producer convicted of murder, you know? Mm. And it was kind of like, you know, that that's that kind of obviated his entire accomplishment and you know i mean committing a murder will do that <laughs> i'm not saying that i feel bad for him but it's just you know what i mean it's just one of those funny things it's going to be hard it's, it how how posterity will look at him as the years go on
0: well it'd you know. be like kind of the same thing with bill cosby where you could say that bill cosby had the a Bernie. very success yeah, exactly. was one of the most successful comedians of all time who transitioned to uh movies and then television and one of the uh, arguably one of the most successful sitcoms of all time but there has to be that comma in the byline when when he passes away, whenever that'll be, because that's that's going to be a big story that's going to kind of overshadow a lot of the accomplishments.
1: Oh, and when and, you know, yeah, you know, and immediately that will be the story. I You probably saw this. Um, um, or maybe it's on YouTube. That's how I saw it. But there was a, I guess Jerry Seinfeld was on Stephen Colbert's show. And they were this was a year ago or so, maybe two. And they were talking about somehow the subject of Bill Cosby came up. And Colbert was like how he had loved Cosby so much. You 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 can already guess, Tony, that as your knowledge of comedy, you can already guess where this is going. Mm-hmm. He uh uh Colbert was like, you know, he'd really loved Bill Cosby, but he just can't listen to those records anymore, or you know, he just you know, he can't he just can't and and Seinfeld was like, I can. I still think he's one of the greatest comedians of all time. You know, he it, it didn't, doesn't affect Jerry somehow. Well,
0: yeah. Well, that's the thing is the the separation from the art from the artist, and I think yeah. a lot of people, especially nowadays, have a very tough time of differentiating the two. Like Louis CK is still one of my favorite comedians. What yeah. he did was pretty reprehensible. I don't know if it was necessarily illegal, but you know, it, there's a lot of stuff that happened at that time that we don't really know the full story. We just got kind of the you know the cliff notes version. Uh, but it doesn't take away from the fact that I still think he's one of the greatest comedians of our generation. It's mm-hmm. just yeah, there is going to be that image and the unfortunate image of Louis C.K. Now with Bill Cosby, yeah, it is difficult for a lot of people to separate that. But do we do the same thing when you find out about you know the allegations of Don Henley or Led Zeppelin with underage right. girls? Like do do right. you, like when you. Listen to a Led Zeppelin song. Are you thinking about? Well, there. You know, I heard this one story about Jimmy Page and Robert Plant and a 15-year-old. Allegedly, I'm just yeah. saying that for. And, right. but nobody thinks two things about it. It's like, oh, communication breakdown. Stairway to Heaven. It's one of my favorite songs. Yeah. It's it's odd how in some ways we can separate it, but others we can't. But maybe that's just because of the morality. And, and Phil Spector is a good example for it because a lot of people don't realize some of their greatest songs, that, some of the greatest songs of all time, were created by somebody who is this horrific human being.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's sort of a a, and this may change but I think that there's I wouldn't be surprised if it changes <laughs> but I think that there's sort of this um, statute of limitations on popular music like I think that like if you have indulged in that kind of behavior from maybe I'm just going to throw this out I'm not being precise here but in that kind of behavior of overt obvious uh sexual improprieties what mm-hmm. have you from say like the like year 2000 on you're probably going to get in really big trouble oh yeah i think that there's sort of like i mean i think that you know you mentioned led zeppelin i mean okay how about the rolling stones you know i mean you know i mean the reality is the you know the beatles always seem like the clean cut guys but if you really read about them it's quite a different story especially Even john to- lennon and especially in their earlier days you know and um yeah right especially john who's the saint of the band right and so um uh yeah i kind of think that like it's almost like people just don't partially i think it's people don't want to go there but i also think it's partially and again this is something that will be evaluated by people much younger than me and they're the ones who will be judgmental about this stuff and they probably already are if you were living at that time it, it it was just different. I'm not trying to justify any of that behavior, especially the, the most egregious stuff. And Zeppelin is a perfect example of that, but it was also always the kind of thing, always the sort of thinking of like, well, you know, those guys, when they were in those bands were like 22 or 23. And then these, you know, so these, and then these girls are like 15, 16, but it, at the time, I, that difference didn't seem as obviously, Wrong as it does now, it's, it's not. It's know.
0: not as taboo.
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly.
0: Right. Yeah. Ask Jerry Lee Lewis how that is.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 the reality also is, and I'm really stepping on very thin ice here, so I'm going to back off very quickly. But is that? I mean, a lot of the girls, women, young women, put them. They 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 wanted to meet these rock stars, and they knew what they were getting into. And you know, it wasn't. It was. I mean. I think it's a little different now because I think that people are more aware. They're more conscious of, of this stuff. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it was kind of a different time, but again, that's not really any defense for it. So, oh, yeah. So, I'll, I'll well,
0: let's, uh, let's go on and talk about somebody who went from having a troubled marriage to a couple of troubled marriages. And that's Larry King who we yeah. lost at the beginning of this year back in uh, January. And Larry yeah. King was one of those where, you know, we've, He's, he was kind of the guy that at one time you would listen to him overnight, and uh, there were a lot of people – because it's funny how your generation and my generation look at Larry King because yeah. your generation looked at him as that he was some guy that you, you, you listened to overnight. He had very good interviews. He had good insight, and he was on the radio in those – just godforsaken hours my generation right. looks at him as he's this old hunched over guy wearing a bow tie or wearing suspenders and he's talking yeah. about garlic and welch's grape juice and he's forgetting <laughs> where he's at and and right. and the fact is that what since when i started watching larry king in the 90s he was old then and it was right. hard to believe it's like wait he's only this age and he's been married you know, eighty-two times. It's, but but what was interesting is when you start looking back at who he was, especially during the Vietnam War era in the '70s and the '80s, he was incredibly influential on yeah. whether it's anywhere from the Alex Joneses and the the uh, Art Bells of the world to just anyone in broadcasting. That was up late. You got to listen to somebody like Larry King that and had that transition over into the uh, talk show on CNN.
1: Yeah, he, well, and he was also one of those people that was just sort of like, seemed like he'd always been there. Of course, by the time you you encountered him, he had always been there, like for seemingly like a century. But um, yeah, uh, he was just like a fixture. He was just like, uh, like, almost like a Regis Philbin type, you know? I mean, just somebody who, you know, is like, wow, you know, this guy seems really good at what he does. I'm not really sure what it is he does, but (laughs) he's pretty good at it. He's there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And, and kind of the same thing is with Rush Limbaugh, is that uh, Rush yeah. had uh, diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago. And somebody that – and I've said this on several podcasts before because I, I think people of a certain generation also a, appreciate the craft of broadcasting in that uh-huh. you don't have to like what he was saying. you don't, You could disagree with 99 percent of what he's saying on the radio, but you yeah. listen, and he was kind of like a musician – in a way of how he was able to structure a show, I listened yeah. to him a lot, but not necessarily for what he was saying, but how he was saying it in the presentation. And Rush was a radio guy before he was a political guy, because right. the opposite is the case for most of these uh, hosts that are, that are around nowadays that were, you know, they were in politics, they served here. George Stephanopoulos, for example, on uh, Good Morning America, he was a, an advisor with the Clintons back in the right. 90s. So he went from politics to working in the media. But when you have the a media person that has this background of working especially in morning zoo types and 1970s right. radio and introducing records and carts and everything, you have to be pretty creative if you're able to make that transition from I'm a you know I'm just a guy who's behind playing records to I have a 3-hour radio show and I have to entertain people. So you will come up with nicknames and everything and 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 Rush again you you didn't have to like him, but what he did, he was a master at his craft when it came to broadcasting.
1: I agree with you completely. I mean, I found it in kind of impossible to listen to him over the, like, in the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. As our politics became so divisive, um, I found him difficult to listen to just because how he would push that so much. Yeah. Um, but, um, but no, uh, going back, yeah, like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, I would listen to him, and um, it, for it, it, I mean, I can't really top how you described it. I mean, he was just he he knew the medium of radio, and he knew how to keep you engaged. He was like a, and although this would appall who I'm going to say this, he was kind of like Howard Stern in that way. How, you know, somebody who like you know he may drive you crazy, you may find him offensive or vulgar or whatever, but and unless it's like you know, he knows how to do radio he has the voice that works on radio and he knows how to uh structure the time and and keep you engaged and uh, I agree with you completely about
0: him and and this spawning I mean you talk about how many you know really terrible radio shows came out of Howard Stern there were a lot of people that were got into broadcasting because of Rush Limbaugh and and you, you saw it in the immediate aftermath with Sean Hannity, Michael Savage, Glenn yeah. Beck, a lot of these top radio shows because of after the Fairness Doctrine was repealed in 1987, that you, and you saw somebody that, well, how can conser- uh, conservative, uh, this blowhard go up there and, you know, but he did it and he was the most listened to radio show for uh, the better part of probably two plus decades, I would say. So he was, I mean, he was incredible at his craft. Um, yeah. I, am bearing the lead because I want to get to a couple of these, uh, for the part two of the podcast, but let's go with some of these authors that we lost. And, and three of them were that, that I wanted to mention up top here were, uh, just, they were giants in their field and they lived really long lives. I mean, these authors, boy, when, when I heard Beverly Cleary passed away at the age of 104, <laughs> And yeah. Eric Carle was in his 90s. Now, Eric yeah. Carle did The Very Hungry Caterpillar that I think everyone my age and probably way before read yeah. that book, uh, it, whether it was in library and kindergarten or anything. And it was very influential for kids. And then also just recently we lost Anne Rice. So if you want to talk about uh, some of those authors that we had lost in 2021.
1: Well, yeah, they're all, um, you know, uh People that had, like, I mean, Beverly Cleary. I mean, she's just been, she had, she's like everything we've been saying about Larry King times three. I mean, she'd been around forever and people loved her writing, loved her stuff. Eric Carl's the same way. Um, and Rice is a fascinating case because she, um, she was a really eccentric person in a lot of ways. Um, she, um, kind of reinvented the vampire genre which had kind of been dormant for some time it's funny to think of that now because we went through 20 years of nothing but vampire movies or twilight and all that other stuff that and probably
0: to. because of her
1: and well yes yeah, she was definitely the progenitor of it there's no doubt about it interview with the vampire her first novel was really set that whole thing off and um and uh in her early it's, it's often the case with genre writers uh I could get in trouble saying this with some people, but like like a Stephen King, for instance, or a John Grisham, um, you know, this goes back in a way to what we were talking about with uh, pop, pop musicians making their best music when they're younger. I mean, you know, the, these people's careers generally tend to be based on those early books, right? I mean, I, I will talk to somebody who's a Stephen King fan and they'll say like, oh, I love Stephen King. You know, did you read his latest book? It's really great and all that. But inevitably, they always go back to Salem's Lot or The Shining, you know, as being the books that they really love, and that's the case with Anne Rice. I mean, it was those first, you know, three or four books that really made her career. Then she went on to write like you know thirty plus books Um, on a wide variety of topics. I always thought it was interesting with her because she apparently had some sort uh, of—I'm not going to say crisis, but some sort of moment of. Of revelation to herself because uh I think that she f- came to this realization that a lot of the people that loved her like the Lestat books, you know, those those early books, um were kind of into like a lot of occult stuff and what have you. And I think that she kind of started to like back off from that a little bit. She was kind of like, you know, well, I'm a you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a practicing Christian. Mm. You know, she she kind of got a little a little nervous about that. But I it was unclear to me whether that that was a move that she made like if she'd always been that way or if she had kind of changed, you know, as the years had gone on and as she kind of saw the effect that her novels had. I'm not really sure about that. It's kind of a Sinead O'Connor thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like all of a sudden she's a monk or whatever, or a nun, or whatever. But um uh but yeah, and Rice, um she, uh, you know, she kept putting the books out, and people still loved loved her writing. And I think that she was, as a genre writer, a a at her best, a a very good literary writer.
0: I'm gonna go through some of these sports figures, and we'll do part two of the podcast that we lost here. Uh, Lee Elder, who was the first uh, black golfer to golf at the Masters. Bobby Bowden, one of the great college football coaches of all time, uh, that's not named Urban Meyer, but that's a different story. (laughs) His career was killed, but not him uh, this past year, (laughs) Urban Meyer. Jim Mudcat Grant, uh, a great pitcher. Elgin Baylor. uh, Leon Spinks lost him. John Chaney. Don Sutton, who won 300-plus games in Major League Baseball. Um, uh, uh, Tommy Lasorda, one of the great managers, a guy that seemed like he looked about 80 for about 80 years. And, yeah, he, uh, had
1: that, he had that Walter Matthau thing going.
0: Yeah, he really did. For whatever reason, I noticed that the baseball managers, some some of the great managers always looked old, like Sparky Anderson, looked like yeah. he was a cadaver, and <laughs> even when he was young.
1: Yeah, right, right.
0: <laughs> Johnny Oates, a lot of those guys. Um, yeah. Uh, Marty Schottenheimer, former Browns, Chiefs, uh, well, at the time they were known as the Redskins, and the Chargers coach uh, uh, had passed away. He had suffered from, I believe, Alzheimer's for a long time. Uh, Just last week when we're recording this, Demarius Thomas died. And uh, apparently he had a car accident a couple of years ago. And this was kind of complications from an accident that he had, only 33 years old. Yeah, um, because
1: I, I had heard that he they said he had died from a seizure and I, I didn't understand what that was all about. So that's what that was related to was a that car accident, or they think anyway a car Yeah, accident.
0: I mean the conspiracy theorists think it could be COVID vaccine, but uh, there isn't really anything <laughs> right. to the, the tinfoil hat's not in my studio right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, the uh, boxer marvelous Marvin Hagler passed away, yeah. and uh, right uh, actually the same week and I believe the day before Larry King died was Hank Aaron.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah a true giant of obviously of of the sport of baseball and uh a um such a just seems like such a cool guy you know (laughs) i mean uh you know he was there for when bonds you know quote unquote broke his record uh i just yeah i was impressed by by hank aaron in so many ways and marvin Hagler was one of the best boxers uh as they say pound for pound uh in the history of boxing yeah i mean he was a great fighter yeah yeah (laughs)
0: I I never got a chance to meet Hank Aaron. Uh, Out of this list, I've seen Marty Schottenheimer. I walked past him. I didn't get a chance to meet Hank Aaron. He was in Cleveland. Now, he was a big time Browns fan because he was friends with Jim Brown. And during the 1970s and 80s, after his uh, playing career ended, he would dress incognito and sit in the dog pound. Oh, wow. And he would sit in the dog pound all the way up until, you know, into the 90s until the Browns moved to Baltimore. And no one knew it was him. Like no one I, knew uh, that yeah, Hank Aaron—that it was just like, oh, it's just another Browns fan. And it's like no, yeah. it's one of the greatest baseball players who ever <laughs> live The home run king is sitting next to you while you're, you know, drinking your P.O.C. beer, your two-three <laughs> beer in the dog pound.
1: <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I did, I did not know that. That's incredible.
0: But he, I guess he wasn't a. He, he, when the team moved, he kind of stopped being a fan. It wasn't like a big deal for him. But he was yeah. in Cleveland back in. I believe it was either 20, I think it was 2016 or 2017. And he was Uh there for the commemoration of the Frank Robinson statue that is uh, in center field at progressive field. And Uh uh, I, I was working at the time at, uh, for, for major league baseball and I was trying to get my way around to see if I can meet Frank Robinson. And one of my coworkers just comes back and, uh, and he's like, I'm like, did you meet, see Frank Robinson? He's like, no, but I was on an elevator with Hank Aaron just now. And I'm like, are you kidding me you you couldn't text me to say hey uh meet meet me over by section 532 we're gonna
1: (laughs) yes i would i would hold that against that guy
0: (laughs) so we're gonna do part two it's gonna be out uh next week and uh we're gonna do more of these uh celebrity deaths that uh uh really affected us in in some way shape or form so uh I hope you folks tune in next week and, uh, you know, stay with it because we're going to talk about movies. We're going to talk about TV shows, talk about some uh, politicians and then comedians as well that we also have on the list. So I thank you folks for listening here to the Check Your Brain podcast here with Bob Ethington. So stay tuned next week. We're going to continue this.